0: This is A Word, a podcast from Slate. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. For more than a hundred years, the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre have been fighting for justice, only to have a judge deliver a powerful blow to their efforts.
1: What happens now? We want the Supreme Court to overrule our judge, kick us back down to court, let us move forward discovery, and have the opportunity to prove our case. That's all we're asking for. Can Tulsa
0: Massacre survivors still find justice? Coming up on A Word with me, Jason Johnson. Stay with us.
1: Sign up to The Economist for in-depth, curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China. And full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month
0: free. Welcome to A Word, a podcast about race and politics and everything else. I'm your host, Jason Johnson. The destruction of the Greenwood community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in 1921 was largely forgotten over the course of American history, certainly by white America. The prosperous black community was burned to the ground, subjected to aerial bombing, the first in American history on a domestic soil, and hundreds of residents were killed and buried in mass graves. But the survivors and descendants of the victims have never stopped fighting for justice. Here's a clip of survivor Viola Fletcher testifying before Congress in 2021, 100 years after the massacre.
2: Still, Greenwich had given me the chance to make, truly make it in this country. Within a few hours, all of that was gone. The night of the massacre, I was awakened by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our home. I still see black men sin being shot, black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear the screams. I have lived through the massacre every day. Our country may forget this history, but I cannot. I will not. And other survivors do not. And our descendants do not.
0: Now the uphill climb for justice has encountered another obstacle. A long shot lawsuit seeking reparations for the victims was dealt a blow in court. But the fight isn't over. Attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons is leading the charge. And he joins us now. DeMario Solomon Simmons, welcome back to A Word.
1: It's always good to talk to you, my
0: brother. Before we talk more about the case, let's talk a little bit about the history. So you joined us last year right after the mass shooting in Buffalo to talk about the Tulsa massacre. And for those who didn't hear that uh, or who aren't familiar with the history, give us just a brief portrait of the Greenwood community that was targeted in Tulsa.
1: Absolutely. The Greenwood community was the richest, most organized African-American community in the history of this country. They 40 blocks of doctors, pharmacists, lawyers, seamstresses, hotel owners, anything you can think of. Uh, That's the so-called American dream that was happening in Greenwood. It was land ownership. It was wealth. People owned planes. And it was a community. Sometimes we talk about Greenwood, we say Black Wall Street. But Black Wall Street was just a part of the greater Greenwood community. It was the city for all the black towns that surrounded it because... Oklahoma, as you know, Jason, was a black haven. And why was that? Because of the black Native Americans that were already here during Indian Territory that created the environment that had black people coming from all over the United States looking for a place to be free, independent, and prosperous.
0: For those who uh, didn't watch Watchmen on HBO or didn't watch Lovecraft Country or haven't paid attention the last two or three years, what happened on May 31st of 1921?
1: On May 31st, well, on May May 30th, there was a black young man by the name of Dick Rowland who was accused of assaulting a white woman. And we know that's a virtual death sentence uh, at that time, if not even now. And they took him to the Tulsa County Jail, and a mob of up to 2,000 bloodthirsty whites came down calling for the death of Dick Rowland. And the major newspaper ran an article that said, To lynch a Negro tonight. And these black men of Greenwood, the most prosperous, wealthiest, educated black men in the nation, millionaires. Several of them was multi-millionaires. They loved their community so much and they loved Dick Rowland so much. These are people that were prominent, door owners, business owners, millionaires. They went across the tracks in their best clothes with their rifles and their guns and said to the sheriff, let us protect Dick Rowland because he's one of ours. Even though he may be a shoeshine boy to you, he's one of ours and we love him. We're gonna protect him. The sheriff said, No, nah, we got it, boys. Y'all should go on home. They said, they said, We're not going anywhere. And then that that mob, one of those races that wanted to lynch Dick Rowland, said to Obi Man, What do you wanna do with that gun? And Obi Man said, I use it if I need to. Obi Man was a World War I veteran. And that white man said, give me that gun. And he tried to snatch the gun from Obi Man. The gun went off and all hell broke loose. Those 2,000 whites were deputized by the city and the county of Tulsa. The black man retreated back into Greenwood and they held off that mob for about 12 hours. And then, unfortunately, the National Guard was brought in and the National Guard had something called machine guns. And they set those machine guns up and they were able to cut and, and destroy all of the defenses of the black men as who they were dying heroically as as their women and children were escaping to the north and getting on the trains and finally they broke through and literally a mob of up to 25,000 whites poured into Greenwood, burning everything in sight, but before burning before murdering, before doing all of that, they looted the the, the the valuables of the Greenwood community, then they burnt it to the ground. It was the first place, Jason, in the history of this country that was bombed from the air. It is the largest crime scene in the history of this country where you have 40 blocks burnt to the ground, over 3,000 people disappeared, 8,000 people known to be homeless for up to nine months, and a community that lost over $200 million in property damage alone.
0: We heard briefly at the beginning of this conversation from Viola Fletcher um, and I mean, it's always amazing to hear her voice. I've had a chance to chat with her, with you. I've seen you on the air on MSNBC. Who are the other survivors that you're representing? And, you know, what are some of their most vivid memories of this terrorist attack?
1: Yeah, so we have three wonderful, uh, unbelievable, special, three living survivors. And you've already talked about Mother Viola Ford Fletcher, 109 years old. We have 108-year-old Leslie Benedhel Randall, who we call Mother Randall. And then we have Mother Fletcher's younger brother, uh, uh, Hughes Van Ellis. We call him Uncle Red. He's 102 plus. Uncle Red was a baby at the time, so he doesn't have specific memories of the actual massacre. But both Mother Fletcher and Mother Randall can tell you about hearing the hearing the the the, the shots, smelling the smoke, seeing the bodies in the street, feeling the, the heat of the flames as they flared down the street getting to safety, getting rounded up. Mother Randall was actually rounded up and taken to what they called at the time, this is not my words, this is the words of the time, concentration camps for the Negroes. Mother Fletcher remembers escaping in a covered wagon. Jason, think about this. We're talking about a time where a person is escaping a massacre in a covered wagon where her mother put her behind in the a, in a, in a, in a wagon and put a, 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 something over her, her head and said, baby, don't, don't look, look out. And, but she was so curious to see what was going on, and she moved that blanket, and she looked out, and she saw the plane. She heard the, the, the screams. She saw dead bodies. She saw the fire, smelled the smoke, and they made it to safety just east of Tulsa to a place called Claremont, where they lived in abject property. They left a house to live in a tent in the forest for two years. This is what my clients experienced. This is what the community of Greenwood experienced, and this is what this case is about.
0: We talk a lot about uh, erased history in America, how violence perpetuated against black people, in particular by white folks and particularly supported by the state, is erased. And that's not just in national conversation. That's not just because a bunch of people in Congress talking about CRT. But this is personal to you. You know, talk a little bit about the fact that you didn't even learn about much of this history and you grew up in the Greenwood area.
1: Jason, as you know, I went to middle school on Greenwood Avenue at Carver Middle School. Never recall hearing about this. Went to the the Crown Jewel of Greenwood, uh, Booker T. Washington High School. Never recall hearing about this. I learned, as you stated, about this in class in 1997, my junior year at the University of Oklahoma, sitting in an intro to African American Studies class with Dr. Keper Newbrow. I came, big, tall, six foot five, three 335 pound man with a booming voice and long locks down his back. He intimidated me. I didn't want to say much in class, but when he started talking about this place in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where these rich black folks had land and property and businesses and with millionaires. And I I, I was sitting there and I raised my hand and said, hey, I'm from Tulsa. That's not true. I'm from Tulsa. I ain't never heard that. And I never been more embarrassed in my life when I found out that I was the one that didn't know my own history. And from that day forward, I have been committed and obsessed with telling and teaching as many people and educating them about the massacre and advocating for justice and reparations for my people who suffered the massacre. My people, including my wife's grandmother, was a massacre uh, victim. My neighbor that across the street was a victim. I didn't even know it. So many people that I knew growing up that I knew whose houses i have been into were victimized by the massacre, was destroyed, their businesses destroyed by the massacre, family members killed by the massacre, and I grew up not knowing about it, and that's why I'm passionate about making sure that everyone not only knows about it, But we'll do something about the continuing harm that we still are suffering.
0: We're going to take a short break and we come back more on the legal fight for Tulsa race massacre survivors. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. This is Jason Johnson, host of A Word, Slate's podcast about race and politics and everything else. I want to take a moment to welcome our new listeners. If you've discovered a word and like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And let us know what you think by writing us at a word at slate.com. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot,
0: Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the Tulsa Race Massacre case with attorney Demario Solomon Simmons. Demario, tell us a little bit about who is this judge? And what was her ruling in your case?
1: Our judge's name is Caroline Wall. Uh, she's an elected Oklahoma State District judge. Uh, according to her own website, she's a quote-unquote constitutional conservative. Um, she, What she did in May of 2022, she actually stated from the bench and ruled that our case would be able to move forward to discovery, meaning she had Uh, overruled or uh, denied the motion to dismiss by the city and other perpetrators. And then she actually, three months later, kind of changed up her ruling somewhat in a written order in August of 2022. But we thought we were still moving forward based upon what was stated to us. And then on May 10th, 2023, which happened to be Mother Fletcher's 109th birthday, we had another hearing where she stated she was going to make a ruling within seven days. Uh, It took over two months for a ruling to occur, and we found out Friday night at 7.45. I found out Friday night at 7.45 on July 7 from a reporter sending me a text message saying, how do you care to comment about the dismissal of your case? Jason, I was shocked. I felt like I had been hit with a a sledgehammer, 500-pound sledgehammer in my stomach because, one, I couldn't believe we had lost because the law and the facts are so clearly on our side. Two, I couldn't believe it was done the way it was done on a, a Friday night and I learned about it from a, from a reporter. And three, all I could think about after I got over my own hurt and depression and little tears is I gotta call my clients on a Friday night and explain to them that their case has been dismissed and I have no reason why because the judge didn't give us any reason at that time.
0: Even though this happened 100 years ago, You are standing on the shoulders of other people who have fought for this case. There's some folks out there who think, oh, yeah, I haven't heard about this. This must be relatively new. But there had been legal efforts and court efforts and local government efforts and banking efforts before you. What were some of the attempts to get reparations, to get justice for Tulsa survivors before you got involved?
1: Man, absolutely. I stand tall on the shoulders of people like B.C. Franklin, a., attorney B.C. Franklin, the father of Dr. John Hope Franklin, the great historian and attorneys, I.W.H. Spears, uh, attorney, so many other attorneys that started filing lawsuits and fighting for justice and reparations literally days after the massacre. There's a very famous picture of uh, B.C. Franklin and his law partner, I.W. Spears, in a tent with law books. Literally days after the massacre, I had that picture recently blown up after this dismissal because it gives me inspiration to know that as much opposition, obstacles and odds that we face today, these brothers were literally practicing law on the ashes of their of their law building in a tent, filing lawsuits against the very people that had just burnt down and, and murdered their entire community. That is the legacy that whose uh, shoulders I stand on. I stand on the shoulders of Professor Charles Ogletree, one of my personal mentors, who in the early 2000s bought a, a, a civil rights case, along with the late, great Johnny Cochran, and people like Professor, my good friend, Professor Eric Miller, people like attorney Michelle Roberts, who many know her as the uh, just-retired NBA Players Association president. But she's an unbelievable litigator. People like Audra Artur and so many more who heaven is fighting, so many non-lawyers who've been pushing this issue, pushing city hall, pushing state government, people like State Representative Don Ross and State Senator Maxine Horner, who did the initial Tulsa Race Riot Commission report at the late 90s, early 2000s. I stand on the shoulders of all these people, and that's why I know that victory will be ours, because in 1921, there's a postcard, Jason, that specifically says there's a postcard of the massacre. You know how these people, these sadistic people like to make postcards and cut off souvenirs of, of our suffering. One of these postcards and it said on there, "Running the Negro out of Tulsa. That was the stated objective of the massacre. We still here 102 years later, we're still fighting 102 years later, and we are still believing in truth, justice and reparations 102 years later. For a long
0: time, Tulsa was referred to as a race riot. And that terminology can have sort of a direct impact on people, right? Because race riot is kind of a neutral term, right? Oh, okay. It's a riot between races. It doesn't it elicit fault, right? It doesn't show the direction of causality. Talk a little bit about that. Talk a bit about how important it is to refer to it as the Tulsa massacre, as opposed to race riot, which is what it was referred to for the last 60, 70 years.
1: Yeah, I'm very proud of the fact that uh, I was one of the first people to make that a very specific issue and ask. I remember in law school when I I wrote my thesis on the Tulsa race. Massacre, and I argued at that time Because everybody still was calling it the riot Just what you just stated, that a riot conjures up the wrong The wrong mental picture, that these two Groups are spontaneously, oh, who's responsible Now this was a massacre, it's a pogrom Some people even call it a holocaust Because the holocaust literally means destruction by fire And this was a community that was destroyed by fire So I was a big proponent of that And was very happy that the RCC, which was the Reparations Coordinating Committee, which was headed by Professor Charles Ogletree and Aljur Artur, who was doing the lit- litigation in the early 2000s. I was a clerk for that. And they, they adopted that language. And we really pushed that and made sure that people stopped saying race And Right now, when someone says the Tulsa race think you may slip, have a slip of the tongue. But really, that shows a level of consciousness at this point, because this was truly a massacre. And that's the thing about the Tulsa Race Massacre. It's not unique that black communities were destroyed across this country. That happened every year all all over the United States of America. It's too many even to name. But to think about the Tulsa Race Massacre that is unique and why it's so important to our overall history and our quest for racial justice is this fact. It was the largest. It was the scope and scale of it. We're talking about 40 blocks. We're talking about ten to 12,000 people. We're talking about $200 million of property damage. And we're talking about black people literally a generation and a half out of enslavement that had done everything that America says we have to do. Own land, work hard, have a business, mind our own business, We did all of that. We built it all up and you came and they bombed it out because that is actually the American way, not this whole mythical. We believe in liberty and justice for all. The American way is to export black people, destroy black people, take black people's land and property. But that's what we're fighting to really change that and make sure that that doesn't happen for further generations.
0: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more about the fight for justice for the victims of the Tulsa Race Massacre with attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons. This is A Word with Jason Johnson. Stay tuned. You're listening to A Word with Jason Johnson. Today, we're talking about the legal battle for the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre with attorney DeMario Solomon Simmons. So how did the three surviving victims respond to this legal setback. And I mean, they've lived more than, they've lived double our lives, right? Me, me and you combined our lives. They have lived longer. So so I, I'm sure they've got a perspective that we can't fathom at this point. But what was their response to the judge's ruling?
1: They were shocked. They were disappointed. They didn't understand why, especially when I told them well we didn't have a written order, so we didn't know what the rationale was. Um, you know, and I, I will say this too. You're right. They've lived through dust bowls and two world wars and two pandemics and real deal Jim Crow. Um, so they're very resilient. Um, and we they simply said, "Hey, well, what? You know, what's the next step? You know, what? What else? What, what can we do?" And that really picked me up because Jason, I was I was devastated. I was devastated. I mean, that night I I couldn't sleep. My hip was hurting. I didn't get any rest. I got up really early Saturday morning. I was trying to just do something to get my mind off of it. And my, my wife said, you need to lay back down. You need, you know, you're not looking good. And um, It took me about 36 hours to get over that. And, and I want to talk about that because I think, you know, we have to acknowledge how difficult this work is and we have to acknowledge, you know, I'm a, I, I am a warrior, right? This is law is my ministry. Justice is my passion. I'm built for this life, but I am a human. And I have to I have to acknowledge that and we have to acknowledge that those of us that's in this space fighting for racial justice and equity and all those things, because we have a suspended reality. You know? And I was having I had this conversation with my interim chief of staff. I was like, man, am I crazy to really believe I'm psychotic? I'm crazy to believe that a system that for 102 years, this is what it has done. This is it. This, been, this, this is not new, but I, I, I suspend my reality because only with suspension of reality and belief 100% that I can be successful, am I able and willing to do the double, triple the amount of work that I have to do than my opponents just to have an opportunity. And that's why I hurt so bad because you start thinking about, man, look at all I am putting into this. And all the people that are on our side put it into this for this system to do what it just always does. No. I don't have to even give you a reason. I just have more power than you. So it took about 36 hours to get over that and talking to the survivors helped me do that because they are wisdom personified. That's when we start thinking about our appeal. We do have an appeal process. And again, here I am. I'm suspending reality again. Hey, I fully believe we're going to be successful in our appeal. Had a powerful meeting today With uh, a new member of our team Appellate pellet member of our team I think it's going to be a fantastic addition I think we have an opportunity to reverse This clearly erroneous Unjust uh, decision in, my, in our in our belief We do have a conservative supreme court So that's what we're up against And that's why I appreciate brothers like you Who did check on me and so many other people around the nation Giving me this platform And uh, helping us get people to come to Justiceforgreenwood.org justiceforgreenwood.org, connect with us, Give donate to the, this work, this work is taxing emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, but also financially, uh, sign up for our newsletter, make phone calls. One of the things that we're doing, Jason, and you know this, is trying to get our dear sister, and I say that with all sincerity, our dear sister, Kristen Clark, Assistant Attorney General at the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, to come in and open the very first ever investigation criminal investigation of the massacre and and they have the power to do that pursuant to the immaterial act of 2007 immaterial Act, cold case act of 2007 reauthorized in 2016. we've had four meetings with the department of justice the last meeting was in may of 2023 and we want we want we're telling them that this dismissal is further proof that oklahoma will not do right so if anybody wants to help out Go to Justice for Greenville, make a donation, sign up for our newsletter, and send our sister Christian Clark an email and say, "Investigate Tulsa."
0: And that's great because I was going to ask you, you know, what people can do. Uh, so that's a perfect answer. What people can do to support you. But but here's the thing: I always, you know, I always want to end the podcast, if not on a positive note, at least on a where do we go from here or what do we do next. So with the judge dismissing the case with prejudice, just you know, before we finish with our audience. What is your next step? What does prejudice mean? And what are your steps for appeal now in order to get justice for the victims of Greenwood?
1: What prejudice simply means we cannot refile the case again. So our next steps is to appeal. We have our appeal. uh, Our appeal is due uh, by August 6th. We will hit that deadline uh, without a doubt, without any problems. And, and we're going to appeal and we're going to ask, I don't want to get too down in the weeds, but in Oklahoma, when you appeal, the Supreme Court can decide to then kick it down to the Civil Court of Appeals. Obviously, we're asking that the Supreme Court retain jurisdiction of this issue. We're going to put front and center that our clients are all above 102 years old, that so this is timings of the essence. And we want the Supreme Court to overrule our judge, kick us back down to court, let us move forward discovery and have the opportunity to prove our case. That's all we're asking for. The judge kicked us out without giving us the opportunity to prove our case. And that's what we're trying to do. That's what we plan to do. And with the help of people like you and your listeners and our great legal team, I think we'll be successful in getting it done.
0: Demario Solomon Simmons is an attorney, and he is representing the survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Thank you so much for joining us today on A Word, and you know I'm going to keep in touch with you.
1: I uh, appreciate your peace.
0: And that's A Word for this week. The show's email is a word at slate.com. This episode was produced by Christy Taiwo Macanjula. Ben Richmond is Slate's Senior Director of Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Vice President of Slate Audio. Our theme music was produced by Don Will. I'm Jason Johnson. Tune in next week for Word.